Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Every year, uh, the Christian communities that arose out of the political and theological conflicts of the 16th century celebrate October 31st as Reformation Day. So it's on this day in 1517, as the story goes, the brilliant but frustrated Augustinian monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 debate theses on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther's concern was over the abusive sale of indulgences. That eventually led him to question the whole theology of indulgences, which then came to reject, he came to reject purgatory. And um, then he doubted the whole Catholic scheme of salvation. And finally, by 1521, he had rejected papal authority entirely. And, in fact, earned his excommunication that same year, 1521. And when events <clears throat> had run their course... The unity of medieval Christendom was a thing of the past. Now, um, personally, I owe much of my adult spiritual formation to those Reformation communities that trace themselves back to Luther's protest. It was there that I learned St. Jerome's maxim that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And I also owe a debt for much, much more, including the lesson that ironically returned me to the Catholic Church. Jesus called for visible unity. And the New Testament taught, and Christ intended, that his community of disciples should be united both spiritually and institutionally. Jesus taught that the world has a right to judge whether the Father sent the Son by the degree of observable love and unity uh, they witness on the part of his disciples. And of all the Christian communities, only the Catholic Church insists on this visible unity as a mark of the Church. Now, for a long time, when I was uh, outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church, I overlooked the differences among the various Protestant communities, thinking that, well, you know, a thousand different flowers bloom, you know. Once I began pastoring, though, and had ordained responsibility to maintain the unity of Christ's body, I couldn't take refuge in that romantic notion that bitter doctrinal divisions were really only creative doctrinal diversity. All around me, in small scale, I watched serious doctrinal disputes continue to split and weaken the witness of the gospel. I mean, look, how can we claim to be ministers of reconciliation between God and humanity if we can't even reconcile our own differences? And worse yet, no Protestant group with which I was familiar even considered visible unity a plausible possibility. So I saw the Catholic Church as the only Christian community that prized both spiritual communion and institutional expression. The Catholic Church took seriously spirit and structure. It took care of the problem of wine and wineskins. It had fire and fireplace. So as a Catholic, I can't commemorate—excuse um, me, let me rephrase that. As a Catholic, I can't celebrate— uh, Reformation Day, but I can commemorate it. Um, the church did need reform in some areas. Uh, people uh, resented uh, clergy privileges and greed in the 16th century. The church had some unresolved structural problems. Who had authority to appoint bishops? Did a bishop answer to the king or to the pope? Just a few centuries before, we had three popes at one time. What was the relationship between the papacy and church councils? So there were real issues, structural issues, but uh, corruption among the clergy 
didn't mean that they had a weak laity. Uh, I mean, we have corruption among some clergy today, and that doesn't mean we don't have a robust laity. New scholarship has now demonstrated that in the 16th century, there was extraordinary vitality among the laity. Right on the eve of Luther's protest, the lay faithful were happily renovating, decorating, building churches. They put their money where their mouth was. Nearly two-thirds of the more than 10,000 parish churches in England were either built or substantially renovated in the century and a half prior to Luther. We have to look at these external measures because, of course, we can't look at people's hearts. Laity were endowing masses at record numbers in Upper Austria. Endowed masses climbed between 1450 and 1480 and peaked in 1517, the year that Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. So devout laity were, you know, leaving detailed instructions for masses said after death, how many, on what days, how the altar should be decorated. These are not the actions of a people who are going through a theological crisis about purgatory. The printing press, invented around 1450, was put to good use in spreading the faith. We had vernacular translation of spiritual books and Bibles dominating the print shops. At least 22 complete editions of the complete Bible were published in Germany by 1522, the same year that Luther finally got his New Testament done. He didn't finish the entire Bible in German until 1534. And lay confraternities were abounding everywhere. There was something called the Devotio Moderna, uh, the modern devotion. <clears throat> and it was a force for spiritual maturity among the laity. It, it had enormous influence. And the bestseller, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, is a product of that movement. And it's hard to overestimate the impact of that book. Um, there were 70 Latin editions, over 50 vernacular editions, and this is before 1500, before Luther himself uh, nails the 95 Theses. That's what Catholic laity were reading on the eve of Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses, the imitation of Christ. So yes, structural reform was needed. There needed to be a cleaning up of corrupt clergy, um, and that was necessary and it was inevitable. It was going to happen. But how do we account for the vast majority of lay faithful who didn't leave? With their time and money, they showed their enthusiasm for the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church right there at the crucial moments of what we call the Reformation. The Catholic Church continued to fulfill the Great Commission that was given by Jesus uh, it, in that century and in the following century. We were sending out missionaries, uh, you know, Francis Xavier, um, Matteo Ricci, Isaac Jogue, Jacques Marquette, uh, later Bishop Barriga. Protestantism didn't develop a vigorous foreign mission movement until the 19th century. So we have a, a funny situation. We've got two paradoxical forces at work at, at the end of medieval Christianity. We have abuses and problems in high places, but we have a vigor and vitality among the laity. The uh, evangelical historian Mark Knoll and the Catholic historian Brad Gregory have both made bold to publicly ask the question, was the Reformation a success? Well, I guess it depends on who's, uh, you know, looking at it. 
But uh, if you take a look at the magisterial reformers, you know, Luther, Calvin, uh, Zwingli, Bucer, Melanchthon, um, there are two stated objectives that would constitute success. The reformers wanted to renew Christ's one church, Christ's one church, and they wanted to show a better, a higher, a deeper uh, spirituality for lay people. And by those two criteria, the reformers themselves did not consider the Reformation a success. First of all, there was no Reformation. There were many, many competing Reformations. This is finally being recognized by uh, book publishers and by scholars. Uh, These were geographically distinct and theologically incompatible. I mean, over a few years after Luther's call for debate, the divided Protestant leadership conceded that they had failed to maintain the visible unity of the church. Calvin wrote to Luther's uh, close, his theologian, the best theologian he had at that time, Melanchthon. He said, Calvin said, it is indescribably ridiculous that we who are in opposition to the whole world should be at the very beginning of the Reformation at issue among ourselves. To which Melanchthon replied, all the waters of the Elbe would not yield me tears sufficient to weep for the miseries caused by the Reformation. Ultimately, unity would be imposed by the secular authorities. After the European Wars of Religion, there was the 1648 Peace Treaty of Westphalia, and that's where we get the uh, formula that the religion of the ruler would be recognized as the religion of the realm. The Reformers not only failed to purify Christ's one church, they failed at producing a superior Christian. Luther himself said, Life is as evil among us as among the Papists. Bucer agreed, With us in Strasbourg there is scarcely any church at all. There is no respect for the word. No one receives the sacrament. The Catholic humanist Erasmus, himself a Reformer and a stern critic of the church, stayed united to the church, but had a common disappointment. Look at the Protestant people, or he called them evangelical people. Have they become any better? Do they yield less to luxury, lust, and greed? Show me a man who that gospel has changed from a toper to a temperate man, from a brute to a gentle creature, and I'll show you many who have become even worse than they were. Now, he was no less critical of Catholic efforts uh, to renew people. So for me, uh, Reformation Day is not a time for triumphalism or, you know, joyful, nostalgic memory. It is a time, though, for serious thinking uh, among Christians. It's time for all Christians to invite one another to seek and find that unity for which Jesus prayed so ardently to his heavenly Father. Before the Second Vatican Council, No one would argue that the various Protestant groups were working to establish unity among themselves. There was an ecumenical movement. With the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church took up its responsibility to not only explain to others the Church's teaching, but also to understand the outlook of others. In uh, Lumen Gentium 8, the Council Fathers chose to say that the one Church of Christ subsists in, rather than simply saying, is identical with. The one church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. What does that mean? We also acknowledge that many elements of sanctification and truth can be found outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church. 
And since these are gifts that ultimately belonged and originally belonged to the Church of Christ, they are forces impelling all of us towards Catholic unity. In his encyclical on ecumenism, John Paul II, ut unum sint is the Latin name for it, he asked the Christian communities throughout the world to pray and to think with him on how the role of Peter, the papacy, can best serve the entire Christian community in restoring the unity Christ wills for his church. So, on a Reformation Day, the papacy is open to a new situation, not giving up anything which is essential to its mission, but open to new ways of serving all Christians. And that's how Catholics can celebrate Reformation's Day, by praying for unity.